0: In your face on 3CR with James, three great guests on the show. Talking real soon to Sam Elkin, they are Victoria's first dedicated LGBTIQ lawyer, as part of a project between Thorn Harbour Health and St Kilda Legal Service. We'll also be chatting with historian Timothy Jones about their chapter in Going Postal, which looks at the marriage equality campaign here in Australia, and of course, it's a year. Since our marriage equality became law here, that has absolutely flown, and I think there's a lot of retrospective reviewing about the campaign and how it affected the community going on. It would be good to hear Timothy's thoughts on that. And at 4.40, Jane Green returns from Vixen Collective talking about the campaign to decriminalise sex work here in Victoria. Well, on the line, we do have Sam Elkin. Sam is Victoria's first dedicated LGBTIQ lawyer. Welcome, Sam.
1: Hello, how you going? I'm a very the well. choice of song by the way before. Uh, that was great. You
0: love arrested development, huh? I do. Awesome yeah. stuff. So Sam, you're Victoria's first dedicated LGBTRQ lawyer. What kind of issues do your clients predominantly present with?
1: Um, yeah, well it's very broad. Um so I hang out at Thorn Harbor Health um, during the week and mainly chat with Thorn Harbor Health clients. So they've got a family violence team and a AOD team and a counselling team. So mm-hmm. Anybody who comes to Thorn Harbour Health can come and have a chat with me as well. So we're dealing with stuff from Centrelink, tenancy, criminal stuff, um, intervention orders, you name it, we do it.
0: Of course, uh, when it was the Victorian AIDS Council, uh, Thorn Harbour used to run a service called the HIV AIDS Legal Service, which it auspiced. To what extent do you still give advice about HIV AIDS legal issues? And if so, what predominantly are they?
1: Yeah, well, um, so how it could still run, I think it's on a Thursday night at out of the Positive Living Centre, which is over in um, Paran or South Yarra. Um, so that still runs, and people can still book in to see um, a volunteer lawyer on on Thursday nights. I'm pretty sure it's Thursday nights. Um, there's still heaps of legal issues related to HIV status and the law. Um, heaps of international students have questions around um, their status and what that means for their visas. Um And uh, de facto partner visas and HIV is also a massive issue, and it's an area where, unfortunately, the Australian government still engages in discrimination against people with HIV. So we've got plenty to say about that. Um, Also, it can come up around family violence stuff. Um, You know, people disclosing HIV status without another person's consent can form the basis of a family violence application and also um, withholding meds and stuff like that. So it does come up in a range of ways. but yeah, often we're interacting with people who are positive that but it might have nothing to do with their particular, their status has anything to do with their legal issue, but always happy to help uh, the HIV positive community.
0: So how does HIV impact on someone's immigration application if, for example, um, they are HIV positive and they want to migrate to Australia and they're seeking permanent residency when they're already here? How does that kind of work?
1: Um, so it's... So, HIV status and also um, tuberculosis is one of two things that the Australian government um, still tests for on a a mandatory basis for a whole bunch of different visas. Migration law is a very technical area of law, so this is kind of just general. um, But it is something that they take into account, and um, unfortunately, it can make it quite difficult for international students to remain... In Australia, um, because the way the government calculates the um, cost for the Australian community, they've got this I would consider to be very outdated way of. Um T- testing how much a person is going to cost the Australian healthcare system when, in fact, international students don't get Medicare. So it's all a bit of a furphy. But um, it's an area where I think there really needs to be some law and policy reform because it's quite unfair at the moment. And international students often don't have access to PrEP in the same way that other people do. So it's really unfair at the moment.
0: You mentioned family violence and intimate partner violence. Uh, What kinds of legal issues do you find yourself giving people advice about in relation to that? Is it mainly intervention orders or is it broader?
1: Um, Yeah, so I definitely give advice to people who are applicants and also respondents in intervention order matters and sometimes there's associated criminal issues that come out of that stuff. Um, I think that sometimes um, the Victoria Police kind of struggle to deal with LGBTIQ family violence in some ways when it doesn't fit the the typical narrative of, um, you know, gendered violence um, where we see, you know, the women, woman being the, the victim and, and the cis male being the perpetrator. I think Victoria Police can sometimes get a little bit confused about the, the quirks and difficulty, uh, differences of our community and sometimes um, I find that intervention order applications fail um on that first day so people don't get the interim orders and are really frustrated and feel like the police don't understand where they're coming from that the courts don't understand where they're coming from so i think there's a real role to play for an lgbtq specialist service both a family violence service and also um legal representatives to actually explain how sometimes things look a little bit different in our community and play out in different ways
0: So it sounds like you spend a lot of time sitting down with clients, giving face-to-face advice. To what extent do you take on casework?
1: Yeah, um, I do one-off advice either by the telephone or um, here in person at Thorn Harbour Health. And I also do plenty of casework as well. So... My background is like civil law, so I love discrimination law and Centrelink and NDIS cases and stuff like that. So I'll definitely take on cases as long as it's something that I'm uh, competent to do. And if it's something that falls outside my area of expertise, like, for example, migration law, um, we've got heaps of um, great connections with the private sector who really want to help our LGBTIQ and um, TGV, um, tra- trans and gender diverse clients. So um, it's always good to get in touch with me, even if I can't run the case, I can usually find somebody really good that can.
0: Tell us about St Kilda Legal Service's role in your project.
1: Yeah, um, St Kilda Legal Service is a wonderful community legal centre. It's one of the first that was set up. It's had a long-standing relationship, um, in particular with the sex worker community. There's traditionally been a sex worker community down in St Kilda and um, we've, we're proud of all of our law reform and policy work we've done um, as allies of, of that community. Um, we do family violence stuff over in Moorabbin, and we've also got a great drug outreach lawyer, Lloyd, who um, provides legal services at like crisis accommodation services and things like that. So we're a service that really likes to get out there and in the community. We don't like to be in the office too much. We try and go to where the people are instead of waiting for them to come to us.
0: So, tell us about the advice that your service gives LGBTIQ sex workers. I read somewhere that over 60% of our sex workers in Australia identify as LGBTIQ. Do you find that the licence system here in Victoria makes it quite a complex legal issue?
1: Um, we, I guess, like we find that um, it really depends on, on what kind of work that people are doing. The kind of issues that people have been presenting to us recently, saying that they're having particular problems with, um, is Actually, quite an interesting one um, around like uh, surveillance and sex work. So people um, coming into uh, premises and using things like spy glasses while um, you know perf- while while they're, they're getting a service, and um, the service was certainly not um, intended to be you know um, recorded or distributed. And there's currently a bit of a gap in our law um, where you can't necessarily prosecute somebody for just illegally filming a sex act against their will. It's the act of distribution only. So that's something that we're currently working on as a law reform issue because we want to make sure that sex workers are protected so that, um, you know, they're not filmed um, without their consent while they're, um, you know, doing work. And um, having stuff uploaded to you know the internet without their consent.
0: So it sounds like under Victorian law or Australian law, it's it's legal for clients to do that if they're uploading it onto the net. But um, it's it's they can do it for their own personal like you know gratification afterwards. There's a it's it's yeah, legal.
1: It's a bit of a grey area, but yeah, definitely you could you could. Um prosecute somebody under the Summary Offences Act if they were caught distributing it Mm. um, and, you know, that could mean a lot of different things. But, yeah, just catching somebody in the act of doing it is not necessarily enough to get a conviction.
0: Do you find yourself advising peak bodies about LGBTIQ law reform that's required here in Victoria? For instance, do you have much to do with the Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby? I
1: haven't Bit to do with it. I'm really lucky because being in Victoria, we've got the fantastic Human Rights Law Centre, and we've got the Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby, and they do amazing kind of um, law reform work at that higher level. And um, you know, for example, the Human Rights Law Centre has been campaigning for um, birth certificate law reform for a long time, and Um, you know, is involved in campaigning for changes to the Sex Discrimination Act. So I certainly play a part in that, but um, I see myself as really a frontline worker. So I'm helping people with the day-to-day and the way that I can really help law reform is by, um, you know, putting together case studies and things like that where clients give me permission to do that. So that we can tell people's stories in a safe and de-identified way to to show the government how the law is working or not working for particular people. So that's the kind of role I play. I'm I'm sort of a I play second fiddle, uh, fiddle to the uh, to the Human Rights Law Centre and Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby with stuff like that, and very happy to do so.
0: So being Victoria's first dedicated LGBTIQ lawyer, that must give you a huge workload and put you under heaps of pressure. How do you manage that?
1: Um, I mean. I will say it's like a real dream job for me. Um, I came to the law a bit later in life and I found that, um, you know, I probably didn't have the confidence that um, my, you know, straight or, or cis friends had um, when I finished uni. And so it's taken me a little bit of a longer path to get to the law. and. For me now, the opportunity to give back to the community that's given me so much confidence and, you know, affection over the years is just a dream come true. So I'm happy to work hard. Um, I'd love to have more support, and I'm always looking for like volunteers to come and help out if they're law students or even social work students or anything like that. If you're interested in that stuff, come and chat with me. But. Um, yeah, it's, it's great working at Thorn Harbour Health as well because there's a bunch of really, um, you know, wonderful, committed uh, people that, that are kind of doing the same stuff that I'm doing but in a health space. So it's a wonderful partnership and it yeah, gives me a lot of inspiration.
0: So how can people access your service?
1: Um, you can just shoot me an email um, for a start. My email address is sam at skls.org.au, or if you look on the St Kilda Legal Service website, um, you'll find our details. And I've also just launched our Facebook page, which oh, awesome. is LGBTI Legal Service. Uh, we couldn't put the queue on for some reason. Facebook wouldn't let us. Um, but we're also running a um, sexual harassment survey um, for the LGBTIQ community at the moment, and we have been Really keen for your listeners to check that out on our Facebook page and do that um, because we want to submit something to the Australian Human Rights Commission inquiry into sexual harassment because I suspect it looks a little bit different um, for LGBTIQ people as well and so we want to capture that.
0: Is that what your clients are telling you? Are you noticing an increase in people reporting sexual harassment and that really fuels the need to contribute to that inquiry?
1: There's definitely been a a significant increase across the board um, since the Me Too movement started, which is absolutely fantastic. And I think a lot of people now, um, you know, whether they're, um, you know, queer, trans or anything else, um, are starting to think in a different way and perhaps in a bit more of an empowered way about the experiences that have happened to them in the past. And um, I think this is a great time to actually think about how we can make the law and our systems work better people and I'm always interested in making things better for LGBTIQ people so I'd like to see um, like anonymous reporting mechanisms and things like that and maybe an investigatory body that can go in and investigate complaints because at the moment the system really relies on an individual complainant to basically run a, a whole court case on their own or if they're lucky enough to have a lawyer but it really puts the onus on the victim and and I think that if we get people's stories about how they've been disempowered in the workplace, we can make a case for for changes so that we can have more support for people that want to speak out.
0: Sam Elkin, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR and thank you for your great work. It's an awesome service to the LGBTIQ community. Thanks heaps. Thank you. Cheers. Sal Malcolm there. Uh, They are Victoria's first dedicated LGBTIQ lawyer working as part of a project between St Kilda Legal Service and Thorn Harbour Health. It's 18 after four. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Timothy Jones is a historian of gender, sexuality and religion who teaches at La Trobe University. He joins us on the line to talk about his chapter in the book Going Postal, which looks at the marriage equality debate and campaign here in Australia. Welcome to 3CR, Timothy. Thanks, James. You wrote that the Postal Survey was both bizarre and typical in the history of Western marriage. How so?
2: Well, I think um, lots of people who were campaigning for uh, change um, were really frustrated at how long uh, the change took to come about, like it was 15 years from uh, when John Howard amended the Marriage Act uh, to exclude queer people from getting married until uh, marriage equality came into legislation. Um but actually, if we look at the history of changes to marriage, that's a relatively short
0: time for such a big change in uh, marriage law. yeah, you wrote that, for instance, uh in Britain, it took seventy years to change a law that disallowed um a man from marrying his sister in law if his wife died, for example.
2: yeah, that's right, yeah, um <laughs> so when you actually look into the the history of legal changes to marriage, they're really protracted and drawn out, taking lifetimes to change for. Like the Deceased Life Sister Act, is now seems really obscure and bizarre to us um, that there would be such fierce opposition to marrying uh, your your dead spouse's partner. Um, but yeah.
0: So, what are the main issues you highlight in your chapter of going postal?
2: Um, well, I guess I wanted to sort of point out that that social change uh, and social change is slow, and political change is often even slower in social change.
0: You need the timing to align, don't you?
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and like in Australia, for example, um, polit- our politicians don't represent the, the values of the majority of the population. Like conservatives are vastly overrepresented in parliament, um, which really amplifies conservative voices uh, and conservative politics in Australia. Um, and also religion is is massively over, overrepresented uh, in Parliament. Our politicians are much more religious than the general population of Australia, which again distorts uh, these debates and amplifies confusion about the relationship in this case between religion and marriage.
0: Which of course segues into the current debate we're seeing about religious freedom in Australia. It seems to be very linked to the marriage equality debate. Rodney Croom was on the show last week. And uh, he felt the debate was taking the shape that it was because conservatives within the coalition had never really forgiven the the LGBTIQ community and the moderates within the party for uh, giving us the marriage law that we actually have now.
2: Absolutely. It's been quite um, fascinating watching the religious aftermath of the marriage equality legislation. In fact, um, I argued in a recent piece that Um, Perhaps one of the biggest uh, consequences or one of the most long-lasting consequences of marriage equality is that we're having this current discussion about the place of religion in public life in Australia. Um, Turnbull announced the Ruddock Review uh, to try and placate the right of his party, um, little thinking that it would actually expose the huge powers that we currently give religious organisations to discriminate against uh, LGBT people and against all people on the basis of sex.
0: So politically, how do you think this issue is going to play out in the coming months?
2: Well, I think uh, conservatives have realised that they made a misstep by having the review into religious freedom and they're rapidly trying to backpedal uh, and trying to um, preserve the uh, privileges they currently have to discriminate. Um, I'm actually relatively optimistic about the nature of um, the, the reform that will eventually come through in this area. Um, I, I basically I don't think the law can get much worse than it currently is, um, and it's quite possible that, uh, that if if there's uh, protections of against religious discrimination that go through, that might have um, positive social change for um, various uh, marginalised groups in our society.
0: To what extent do you think that because the conservatives recognise that misstep, that that's the reason the prime minister hasn't released the Ruddock review report?
2: Uh, Well, he actually released it yesterday. Really? It's come Um, out? Yes, it's just come out. He promised that he would do it before Christmas, but I think the reason reason why they um, didn't release it was because once the report came in, they realised that it it doesn't do what they wanted it to do. Um, When its recommendations were released, the outcry against even the moderate recommendations of the review was so great that Morrison had to come out and say... Uh, that he would protect LGBT kids against discrimination, which actually the Ruddock Review didn't even recommend. Um, The the review just recommended that schools that were going to exercise their power to discriminate against LGBT kids would have to say so publicly, otherwise they wouldn't be allowed to uh, exercise that power.
0: What does the Ruddock Review report actually say about LGBTIQ teachers in religious schools? Did he make any recommendations there?
2: So it doesn't doesn't recommend... uh, It it recommends qualifying current powers of discrimination. So the Ruddock uh, review didn't recommend removing religious schools' powers to discriminate, um, but it said they were only... It recommended they only be allowed to use those powers of discrimination against teachers and against children um, if they publicly stated, if it was was in print, uh, that that was their policy, that they were going to be discriminating schools.
0: It's interesting because Rodney Crim was on the show last week and he called on uh, the Prime Minister to release the Ruddick Review report straight away and it sounds like, you know, the lobbying he's been doing in that area may have been effective because it's come out a little bit sooner than we anticipated.
2: Well, it's come out about when we expected. Uh, Morrison said he would release it and the government's policy before Christmas um, and, uh, and that's what he's done. Um, you know, release it in the time of year when people are too, uh, you know, gearing up for Christmas Getting ready for holidays, I don't really want to pay attention. Um, the legislation that the Greens and Labor uh, introduced into the Senate last week has been sent to Senate Committee, um, which is uh, due to the report early. You know, during the holidays, so they're they're uh, early in January. The Senate Committee is uh, accepting submissions, but they're really putting all this really quite important um, important issues. Uh, that as a society will want to think about what, what role religion plays and what rights we give to religious groups to discriminate. They're trying to kind of rush it through whilst people are on holidays, and so I think it's a bit
0: um, a bit shameful on their part. Political expediency. So, Timothy, a year on from the marriage equality debate finishing and it becoming law here in Australia, how do you look back on that campaign? What are the main kind of feelings that come up for you?
2: Yeah, it's a a complex thing to look back on and what I really love about the Going Postal book is that it's a great companion piece to the other more celebratory um, books. There's the Yes, Yes, Yes book, um, authored by some of the leaders of the Marriage Equality Campaign. The Going Postal book is a really beautiful document of the harder experiences that many LGBT people felt. Uh, during that time, the the feeling that lots of trans people felt about being excluded, the difficulties that queer people of colour felt not being represented in the campaign, the kinds of experiences of discrimination, the family traumas that the campaign dredged up. So it's a really um, lovely uh, archive of uh, all of the different writings uh, and expressions that uh, we as a community had that don't necessarily fit into the triumphant celebratory narratives Um, that
0: many of us also want to remember. Do you think the Postal Survey campaign was a missed opportunity to combat homophobia and transphobia here in Australia?
2: Uh, I probably wouldn't phrase it in that way. Um, I mean, I think the Postal Survey was a stimulus to massive homophobia and transphobia in the community. Lots of people uh, were under attack, but the the survey uh, legitimised a lot of uh, conservatives, to express uh, homophobic sentiment, was, was it a lost opportunity? Um, yeah, I just think it was an opportunity. It was an added opportunity for homophobia and transphobia. So, uh, yeah, I probably just reversed the question
0: on you. So, Timothy, who were some of the other authors that are actually published in Going Postal, and did any of them have opinions that vastly differed from from yours on on marriage equality here in Australia and the and the campaign?
2: So there's about 50 authors in the wow. book. Um, it was struck... One, the the uh, lead editor, Quinn Eads, wrote a series of poems during the survey called I Can't Stop Qu- Crying, eight, eight quite long pieces, and uh, his partner suggested, oh, these are really beautiful documents, Quinn, you should publish them, and rather than just publishing them as his own writing, Quinn decided to publish them like with a big collective of queer people's writings during the survey, and they do document a range of perspectives, uh, document the, the difficult experiences of queer people who didn't, who are not into marriage and kind of politically oppose marriage, but then felt like they had to join the campaign. Uh, lots of people of colour, lots of trans people. There's a tweet from Beirut Bachani from uh, tweeting from Manus Island in support of the campaign. Um, there's photographs and cartoons. Like it's a really diverse collection uh, of of many experiences that were perhaps not represented in the mainstream campaign and its commemoration.
0: Tell us about the experience documented in Going Postal that moved you the most.
2: That moved me the most. There's many, many moving um, stories. And in fact, when my copy arrived in the mail, I started reading it and I just started crying. It just just transported me back into that time, the difficult experiences that I had with my family, talking to them about marriage, the experiences of my friends, um, uh, you know, the way that we banded together and supported each other was really lovely and remembering the kinds of um, political solidarities that uh, that grew up in that time, which I think also gave me hope for the future, that lots of people got a political education and got motivated to get involved in the political process um, when perhaps in other
0: circumstances they wouldn't have... What unfinished business is there from the marriage equality campaign and how should the LGBTIQ harness that for a new campaign? Uh, and what issues should that campaign focus on, do you think?
2: Well, there are, there are uh, still um, in various jurisdictions some uh, loose ends around marriage issue itself, particularly with trans people. Uh, but it's also raised uh, uh, the significance of how much legislation in different jurisdictions in Australia... Uh, is unjust and unequal for LGBT people. And I was really encouraged um, in the last week to see that the Marriage Equality Organization has rebranded itself um, and as equality uh, and is going to continue campaigning for all of these other issues, for forced surgeries on intersex people, uh, for the various discriminations that trans people still experience, Uh, to combat uh, conversion therapy, gay conversion therapy, which is legal around Australia still. There's actually a big legislative agenda uh, of reform, um, which is not necessarily as conveniently uh, simple as the Marriage Act, um, but which we need to keep uh, campaigning for and fighting for the rights of LGBT people, people around the country.
0: I saw a lawyer from the Human Rights uh, Centre actually on SBS just last week talking about this new organisation or the rebranded organisation and they said that they felt that religious freedom was the most important issue facing the LGBTIQ community at the moment, particularly discrimination in religious schools. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think um, it may not be... I mean, all of these issues are very important depending on who you are. Um, they're going to impact on your life in different ways. But at the moment, um, conservatives, uh, people who don't accept LGBT people as full human members of society, are really putting their force behind changing the law to uh, strengthen religious rights to discriminate against us. Uh, So I think it's important that we do pay attention and get involved in this process, particularly as the government's trying to sneak it through during
0: the holidays. Timothy Jones, fascinating talking to you. Thanks so much for joining me today on 3CR. Much appreciated. Thanks, James. My pleasure. Historian Timothy Jones there from La Trobe University talking about their chapter in Going Postal, which you can get from all good bookstores. It's 25 to 5 You are and In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm joined by Jane Green in the studio from the Vixen Collective to talk about the campaign for decriminalisation of sex work here in Victoria. Welcome back, Jane.
3: Thanks for having me back.
0: It's a great pleasure. Now, you had some what I would regard as a big success during the state election campaign. Kathleen Maltzahn, the Greens' candidate for Richmond, uh, had a... A position on sex work that flip-flopped quite a bit, but ultimately for many years she had supported the Nordic model. Uh, she was defeated at the poll. Her vote went significantly backwards from what it did in 2014. To what extent do you think your campaign was influential in that?
3: Well, look, um, we've had feedback from people that were actually calling Richmond doing the polling prior to the election, and they said that consistently people raised the issue of sex work, that they were aware of it, and that it had factored into their decision not to vote, vote for Maltzen.
0: Wow. So do you find that because of the success of your campaign that politicians are more likely to take your campaign seriously and that's why you've been so busy post-election?
3: To a certain extent. I think um, a lot of people that are involved in activism realise it's very difficult a lot of the time to get space in the political arena um, and to be listened to. So I think that's a constant struggle for us. Um, But I think we've had a degree of... Uh, profile in terms of the work we do, uh, particularly around the Victorian election that we perhaps haven't seen before. And that's really important for our community.
0: Victoria, of course, has a new Attorney-General, Jill Hennessy from the left of the Labor Party. Will you be calling on her for a meeting? And will you be asking her Department of Justice to draft uh, a bill to take to Cabinet?
3: Well, look, I think we'll be having discussions with a lot of people. Um, I can say that prior to the election um, as part of the campaign, Um, We spoke to Jill Hennessy and she agreed to have a meeting. She was Minister of Health at the time, but we will hold her to that agreement and we'll look forward to having that discussion.
0: Because you'd think her department would actually draft any legislation uh, that would be going to Cabinet?
3: Well, I I think my hope would be, um, as a sex worker and as an advocate for community, that they would draft legislation with sex workers' peer organisations, which is Vixen Collective here in Victoria, but Scarlet Alliance at a national level. Um, So they should be doing that with us in partnership with the affected community.
0: Fiona Patton, of course, was returned from the Reason Party after surviving a near-death political experience. Uh, All the media thought she was gone. She thought she was gone, but she overcame the preference whisperer uh, because she didn't hire him, and she actually got re-elected. She's a former director of the Eros Foundation, which represents uh, brothels. Uh, She's also a former sex worker. She made a commitment during the campaign Uh, to support decriminalisation. Do you expect her to push as hard on this issue as she did on exclusion zones, for example, during the last term of Parliament?
3: Look, I mean, I I can't really anticipate what any given politician is going to do. The the one thing I would say is that anyone who's speaking about this in the political arena should be speaking with sex workers first um, and following what our community says we need and we want. Um, And I'd certainly ask that of Fiona, just like I'd ask that of any politician.
0: So in terms of the last 12 months with your campaigning, I mean, you just said that, you know, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? You know, people should be talking to sex workers, you know, politicians and, and public servants should be doing that. Do you find, though, that sex workers in reality are often pushed down the pecking order of people who are consulted about this issue? And if so, who's up the top?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we're not just pushed down the pecking order. There have been um, points in time where we've been excluded entirely from the process. Um, in 2015, prior to the review of the sex work regulations, which had a 10-year sunset clause and they had to review it, um, we were actually excluded from the consultation. We weren't considered a key stakeholder. Um, and we had to fight very hard to be included in that process. So it can be as stark as that, that we're just not spoken to at all. Um, But also, people um, often speak about stakeholders in regard to sex work, and they include people like the police, like religious organisations that actually oppose sex work on morals grounds, secular organisations that oppose sex worker rights, and a range of parties including brothel owners and operators. And I think the key thing that I would say as a sex worker is that our voices need to be heard and prioritised in that space.
0: Do you find that since the state election and the success of your campaign that other uh, sex worker organisations interstate who are also campaigning for decriminalisation are looking at the way you ran your campaign? They're adopting some of your practices?
3: Well, I mean, I think the the, um, important thing is there's campaigns running all the time to advance sex worker rights, including advancing decrim in a number of states, um, because in Australia only New South Wales actually has decrim. And that's not full decriminalisation, it's a form of decriminalisation. So I think Queensland's doing very important work. I think we also take um, a lead from South Australia where they've been running a decriminalisation campaign for a very long time. And I think we try and work together and share information. I know that on a personal level, I think we've been very successful in terms of raising our issues up towards the election this year. And I think we'll be sharing that with other sex worker organisations, as well as building on great things that they've done
0: often for law reform change and, and significant public policy change. There has to be that political will, obviously, but there has to be that window of opportunity. The planets have to align. Do you feel that your planets are aligning? Or do you feel that um, that window of opportunity is there for sex worker activists to achieve decriminalisation in this term? And what do you think's created that window of opportunity, if it exists?
3: I think there is a window of opportunity. Um, I think what has created that window of opportunity is very hard work by Victorian sex workers to raise our issues and to speak out. Um, so we can absolutely get a lot done, but we do need to constantly fight to keep our voices in that space and to actually get a seat at the table when discussions are happening.
0: So tell us a little bit about the history insofar as the timing is concerned of sex worker activism in Victoria. When do you think the birth of the sex worker law reform activist push actually began what was that defining moment and when do you think
3: sex workers have been fighting for our rights here in victoria and around the world forever (laughs) we've always been i mean and much like other workers and other industries um it's a continual process i don't think you can point necessarily to a, a specific starting point i mean a major landmark sort of um times For pushing sex worker rights globally have been um, the Lyon protest in France which was in the 70s if my memory serves me. So there's been a number of pivotal events. Um, I think the fact that Victoria was the first state or place in the world to have a funded sex worker organisation um, which makes it all the more depressing that we don't have a funded sex worker organisation in Victoria now. There's certainly some landmark um, things that have happened but it's a continual struggle.
0: So it sounds like another window of opportunities perhaps for that funded service.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and look, we're the only state in the country that doesn't have a funded peer-based service, um, and it's just not okay. Uh, Vixen does a lot of work, Um, we actually did statistics for 2017 recently, and we had 3,393 occasions of direct peer support. Wow. We're doing that as an unfunded organisation, and we need to do more, and we need to have funding to allow us to do more for our community.
0: Yeah, so what can we expect you to be doing for the community in terms of your activism in the coming months?
3: Um think we currently do and more. Uh, we do direct peer support and peer education, we do outreach, we do community education, we work with other community peer organisations. Um, but yeah, we will be absolutely campaigning for decriminalisation. And the one thing I can say to people is get out there and support sex workers, turn up at rallies, turn up at actions, boost our, our content on social media. Um, and if there are people out there working with organisations uh, who don't support sex worker rights, get in touch with us because you should support us and you should do it publicly.
0: I was talking to Jared Bartle on the show a couple of weeks ago. He ran for Albert Park uh, in the state election. He he was pushing for decriminalisation of sex work and he said he spoke to numerous Labour people who were very interested in the issue from a workers' rights issue, a trade union type perspective. Have any unions reached out to the Vixen Collective and, and other groups pushing for law reform here in Victoria in recent times?
3: Well, it's interesting Jared would say that, because he actually works for Eros, which is the Owners, Operators and Adult Retail Association. I didn't
0: realise that.
3: Yeah. Um, so, But, I mean, look, it's absolutely a workers' rights issue. Uh, we've had tremendous support um, from the unions in the last year. Um, that's factored a lot in terms of the frontline work we've done protesting Kathleen Maltzen uh, running for the Greens. And we need allies. We need supporters to turn up and stand with us.
0: Kathleen Moltson, of course, has run three times for the Greens for Richmond each time she's lost to the incumbent Richard Wynn. Uh, do you think they'll run her again or do you think they'll give up?
3: I'd certainly hope that they won't run her again. Um, I mean, look, the feedback we have is that this should be the last time, but those are discussions we'll have with the Victorian Greens. Um because they really shouldn't be running someone who has views that so diametrically oppose their own policy platform, um, or someone who just doesn't believe in workers' rights for all workers. That's fundamentally incompatible with who the Greens are, and I really was shocked that they ran her again.
0: Do you think that they may move her to a seat that's perhaps winnable, but uh, in an electorate where this issue may not cut through the same way that it did in Richmond here in Melbourne?
3: Um, Look, I don't think it would be wise of them to do that. Um, We will follow her and campaign (laughs) again. And I mean, I I said to the Greens um, prior to the election, um, a good year before the election, that they shouldn't run her, that she should have failed on probity um, as someone they shouldn't be running as a candidate anywhere, um, and that we would make sure she didn't win. And I'd say that stands. I think sex workers and our allies in the community will be much angrier if she runs a fourth time, and the Greens should know that by now. Um, and it should have the good sense not to do it another time. So how
0: is this work affecting you personally? I mean, you're one of the public faces of of the campaign. Uh, you were saying off mic that, you know, things haven't slowed down after the after the November 24 election. Um, how are you holding up with all of this? I mean, you seem great, but, but what kind of a toll does it take on you personally?
3: Um, I'm tired but I'm still going. Um, I mean, look, the one thing I always emphasise to people is because I'm out as a sex worker, um, I am a public face of the campaign here in Victoria but I'm just one face among so many people that do this work on the ground every day. Um, But yeah, I think I was expecting things to perhaps get calmer after the election, and they haven't. But that's probably a good thing. It means more people are talking to us and reaching out.
0: Do you find more sex workers are perhaps you know emboldened by the success of your campaign and feel perhaps like they can also um, step up to kind of you know join you in this in this public face
3: approach? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, sex workers supported our campaign um, right across Australia. Individual sex workers supported us on social media, and that was a big part of our success in mm. terms of this election cycle. Um, I think there's real issues with how we well whether uh, social media is a friendly environment for sex workers anymore, particularly with changes coming in on Monday, I think. With uh, Tumblr? Yes. Tell us about that. So... Um, a lot of different social media platforms have made changes to their content policies because of the foster and sister laws brought in mm. in the US. Uh, Tumblr is just the most recent, and it's very unfortunate, not just for sex workers, but I think for a lot of marginalised people, um, for LGBTIQA plus people on Tumblr, um, for people of colour, uh, for people from a whole variety of sexual subcultures that are now going to have their content removed. Um, and not be able to discuss things that are relevant to their lives in the way they have before. And I think we should be all concerned about online censorship, because often uh, sex workers are sort of the canary in the coal mine for this sort of stuff, Um, and it affects people much more broadly than just our community.
0: It seems like a very punitive policy. I mean, uh, you know, it's not about soliciting, it's it's, it's banning sex workers from... Uh, sharing their personal experiences about pushing for law reform, about showing the human face. Um, do you think that's a fair term, punitive? It seems like that to me.
3: No, it is punitive, absolutely. And it's not just about um, content that relates to sex work in terms of people running their businesses and advertising. It's really important content where um, sex workers share safety information, where we network as a community, where we speak about our rights and what our lives are like. And to have that wiped away, um, is really scary. So where is
0: Tumblr based? What jurisdiction is it in? It sounds like sex workers in Australia really have no influence over over challenging this this policy at all.
3: No, I, I think sex workers um, across the board have a lot of problems with challenging these sorts of policies. I think a lot of this um, has come about because of the change in US laws, but I mean we've faced pushback on social media platforms before. Um, certainly in terms of Twitter, there have been concerns with shadow banning of sex work-related content for a long time. Um, Is that
0: why there's often code with sex workers, perhaps, on Twitter?
3: Look, I, I think there's, there's code um, for sex workers, but there's also um, other communities that have use, used code um and you know words that aren't explicit about what they're talking about um, because of bans on content and discrimination um, and the stigma attached to what they're doing and I think there's that crossover between LGBTIQA community and sex workers where we've faced a lot of the same issues and there's a massive overlap between our communities. So which
0: sites are the worst? You mentioned Twitter I imagine Facebook isn't great?
3: No Facebook isn't great um, and I think we really are going to see this play out, um, It certainly played out this year but the law in the US actually officially come into force um, in January and everything we've seen this year um, in regard to foster sister has been um, a preemptive measure that's been taken by uh, content providers online and so it may get worse and it's likely to get worse.
0: Jane Green, always awesome to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on 3CR.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.